If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 111 now, which is pound on page 606, 606. A few years ago, I spoke at the, at the uh, a church in Washington, a lovely Baptist church there at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. And uh, as I continued to speak, my wife with me, Helen, uh, uh, went off to the National Art Gallery of Art to have what I call a vicarious look uh, f- because she was looking for me because I couldn't get there at my uh, favourite painting. Uh, unfortunately, that's as close as I got to it. But Helen assured me that it was there and she did assure me that it was beautiful and uh, she did see it, so it does exist and I've seen it through her eyes, which is not really with all due respects to her, that's satisfying. It's something you've got to see for yourself, but I have seen many times. Uh, For many years now, I've loved 17th century Dutch art, and amongst those artists, my favourite is is Jan Vermeer, or Johannes Vermeer. Uh, If you're going to pick an artist, he's a good one to pick, unlike Rembrandt. There's only 30 or so of them in existence, 34 actually, and three disputed ones. So you can, you can know everything that Van Meer, Vermeer has done for you, you see, whereas if you pick Rembrandt, then you've got to know far too much. And you can chase them down because there are 34 of them. As you ever travel any part of the world, there's one here, there's one there. Whichever great city you go to, you can find there is a Vermeer. But my favourite one is in Washington. So boring as it may seem for people... My favourite Vermeer painting is The Woman Weighing Pearls. It is classic Vermeer. A light source, a window, somebody standing, seeming doing almost nothing. It's a lovely, gentle, quiet moment. Life caught in a single glance. Beautifully poised. A, A delicate, private moment of great power and attraction. It's such a work of delicate and profound craftsmanship that it actually deserves careful study. And with some study and thought, it brings to light an even greater message than the sheer sensual delight of beauty. But first turn with me to Psalm 111, which starts with a call to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord... I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. And to praise God is to speak well of him, as to praise anybody is to speak well of them. We can do it with music or without music. It's to declare the greatness, the wonderfulness of God. Just as you can praise the athlete or an artist or a father or a grandmother. But notice that it's more specific than praising God. It's praising the Lord, as we keep mentioning. That means it's praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. For we do not use Yahweh as a name in the English text, but that's what's there in the Hebrew text. In the English text, we present Yahweh as Lord in uppercase with all four letters. The Jews were afraid, you see, of misusing, of blaspheming the name of God. And so they just called him Adonai, that is Lord. And we've continued with that tradition through centuries. 
God is the creator. God is the owner. The owner and creator of all. That's what he is. As a Lord, as a master, with lower capital, lower case, L-O-R-D, is what he does. But the Lord, in uppercase like that, means Yahweh. That's who he is. That is, I am a man. That's what I am. I am the dean and that's what I do. But I am Philip. That's who I am. God is what he is. Our Lord is what he does. But the Lord, Yahweh, is who he is. Uh, That's why I like people calling me by my name, Philip. It's my name. It's my Christian name. It's not my given name, but my Christian name. And it shows me that we are in relationship with each other and that you're treating me as a Christian if you call me by my Christian name. Praise Yahweh is what is being said. I'll give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. It changes the feel of the scriptures and of the psalm when you move from the Lord to Yahweh. But more importantly, It's being very specific about which God we're praising. It's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, the God who is the God who created all things in the whole universe. That God, Yahweh, is the one we're being called to praise. So, not surprisingly, the psalm starts by praising, declaring to us how great are the works of Yahweh, especially in creation, verse 2 Great are the works of Yahweh, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. God is not an idea. He's not something to ponder on a wet Saturday afternoon or to boring philosophy classes. God was active in creation, creating the whole universe and continuing to uphold it. Thus the whole work of creation is the work of his hand. Vermeer only painted a few great paintings, such that I, but they are sufficiently great that I can actually praise his artistry to you 350 years afterwards. But God, God made everything. He made the heavens and the earth with infinite vastness and space beyond our gaze to the infinitesimally small energy particles that are too small for us to actually see. God has created all things, and God's work of creation is a wonderful storehouse of reasons to praise God. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. But it's more than that. For when God created the universe, he declared that all he created was very good, thus making the world something itself which is good and worthy of study. The world was not some accident, nor a matter of divine oversight, nor is it an evil distraction, but is the good work of the purposeful and intentional mind of Yahweh, the creator of all things." Sometimes you grasp the significance of something when you hear the alternative to it. 
You see, for the Hare Krishna, and indeed for many Hindus, they believe that the world itself is evil. Physical existence is evil. The material existence is a distraction from the spiritual realities. And therefore the spiritual reality is what is worthy of study, but the physical realities are not worthy of study. In fact, to spend your time studying the physical realities of the world is a distraction from your true spiritual calling. And so you will not get Hindu science. You will not get Hindu technology because they're all a distraction from our spiritual reality. Whereas within the Bible, God has made a world that is itself good and worthy of our study. You notice verse 2 says, The great works of the Lord are studied by all who delight in them, for they are his great works. It's because God has created this good creation that we are to study and to take delight in the world that is around about us. It's out of the Judaic Christian worldview that our culture delights in the study of the world. Our culture is committed to education and to schooling. It comes out of the Protestant Reformation when people rediscovered the Bible in the, 15th, in the 16th and 17th century that we developed what we call modern science and technology. For Christians delight in seeing the handiwork of God discovered in the careful study of God's word. This is especially because God created humanity in his image. It's not just that he created a good world, that is true, but he also created us in his image in this good world. And so we are created to rule the world under his authority. We're to fill, subdue the creation for him. We're appointed as his vicegerents. He has given us the skills and understanding to search and to seek and to study. The other creatures, the animals, live out their instincts. They eat, they drink, they copulate, they reproduce, they age, they die, but it is never more than at the level of their instincts. But humans study and search and understand and reorganize and guard and protect and, and are responsible for God's creation. Uh, come back to Mr. Vermeer. Only a human would have painted that. No animal could or would paint that. And only a human would stand in front of it and admire its beauty and ponder its message. Only a human would analyse this message. There she is, dressed in her expensive finery of 17th century, the ermine-tipped coat, carefully, casual, as she weighs out her many pearls, evaluating their weight and wealth. Here is an idle, rich woman with a strange, vacant stare, of beautiful affluence. The picture is more than beautiful. It's a message about wealth. Only humans created in the image of God are engaged in the study of the works of God. 
Only a human would stand and play with the pearls. But the psalmist says more. For he talks of the Lord's righteousness there at the end of verse 3. For splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. And in the rest of the psalm, he goes on praising God's righteousness in particular. For the God who created the world, Yahweh, is also the God who rules the world and he rules the world in righteousness and in particular, he rescues and redeems and rules over his people Israel. For throughout the psalm, the Lord Yahweh's character is held out for us to praise. Verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Yahweh's not like the other gods. He's not like sinful humanity either. Yahweh is righteous and gracious, merciful and faithful, just and trustworthy. And you just ponder for a moment that list of words. And Yahweh is the person you'd like to have as your flatmate, as your next door neighbor, as your friend, as your brother, as your spouse. Someone who is just like that, righteous, gracious, merciful, faithful, just, trustworthy. If only the people in the office were that, going to work would be so much more pleasurable, wouldn't it? If only I was like that, more people might like coming and working with me as well. These are all the kinds of things that we would value and want in any person and these are the personal attributes of the God of all the earth. And if you have eyes to see, if you study with delight, you'll be able to see and remember his wondrous works. You'll be able to see his great character in what he has done. For this knowledge of God is seen in his wondrous works, especially in his works of redemption of Israel. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. It's right that we study creation to see the handiwork of the creator and praise him for his wonderful, amazing work. But we should also study the history of the world and see the work of God in governing of the nations and in particular the strange and extraordinary people of Israel to study only the wonderful creation without looking for the works of God in creation that he has caused us to to remember is to miss out on the meaning of the world itself for God rescued Israel out of Egypt he provided food for them and they crossed the wilderness keeping his promises to them and keeping his promises to their forefathers, showing incredible power in miraculously overcoming their enemies, giving to them the promised land, the inheritance of the nations. The whole history 
of the formation of Israel from the amazing escape out of Egypt to the astonishing invasion of Canaan, God caused us to remember by his word. Like the song that Moses gave them in Deuteronomy 32. At the, at the end of his life, at the end of his lifetime, he taught them a psalm that would remind them of what God has done so that people would keep on singing of the great victory, the great events that took place because it was such an extraordinary thing to happen. Which other people of the ancient world have a story like that? Which other group of slaves were able to be liberated to become their own nation and to set up their own nation in a land that they then ruled for, they're still there. Which other people of the ancient world are still around? You don't meet the average Girgashite, Hittite, Amalekite, Moabite, Edomite. I've never come across any of them myself. It's a very multicultural city, the city of Sydney, but Edomites are not common in any suburb that I've ever come across, nor a Moabite. But that little nomadic family of Abram, they're still around. He said that he, Abram said that God had told him that he would be the father of many nations and that his child would be the source of of blessing and cursing for many nations, that in the future there'd be world conflict over him and his son. Here we are, 4,000 years later, and what's the world fighting over? But Palestine and Israel, and questioning who is the true descendant of Abraham. Is it Israel through Isaac? Or is it Islam through Ishmael? Or is it Christianity through Jesus? Who are the true children of Abraham? It's the word of God, you see, that gives meaning to the history of the world, that gives meaning to the creatures of this world. And it's the creatures made in his image with eyes to study and see not just the works of God, but to study and see the wonder of God's character in the meaning of his works and in the meaning of history and the righteousness with which he has ruled the world. So look again at Vermeer's lady weighing her pearls. For there's more to it than a beautiful woman finely dressed and delicately poised and posed by the artist. There's more to it than a comment on wealth an idle fascination. Do you see the painting that is behind her head? It's slightly dark in this print, but it's actually slightly dark in the original, so my wife tells me. But it's unmistakable in its intention. For the picture, within the picture, that stands as mute testimony over her informs us of the meaning of her actions. It's a picture of the last judgment, with God on his throne calling us all to account. Here she is weighing out, in the balance, her judgment of her pearls, while she herself is standing under the judgment of God. A far greater judgment than 
the value of the pearls. Her vacant, happy smile seems oblivious to the danger while she plays with the baubles of worldly wealth she's standing under the image of the judgment of God which hanging on the wall is of course being ignored because it's always there so when we see the work of God not only in creation but also in the redemption of Israel we see the Lord is holy and awesome verse 9 rightly concludes holy and awesome is his name there's no other god like Yahweh he is holy the word holy means different set aside unique he is holy and more than that he is awesome awesome in the full sense of the world word not in the cliched sense our our dear American friends they share with us uh, the English language so to speak and in their sharing it they they create certain words and things in America have become awesome Uh, and so you can even apply it into cricket where you see someone hits an awesome six that's a cliche of the word awesome it's a devaluation of the word awesome there is a movie that my my children have taken my grandchildren to at the moment the Lego movie which I haven't seen but they told me about it because the musical theme of it is everything is awesome when you're living out a dream and the whole piece of music is like Lego and everything you see is awesome and the word no longer means anything it just means good means okay it means but that's not what the word means here that uh, things are awesome things are awful that means they are full of awe and awe is is astonishment is wonder is fear it is the sense of being overwhelmed by the astonishing power of what you are looking at of what you are feeling awesome is a powerful great word which is now being lost to us but I'm not quite sure we've got another word to replace it with and so we need to capture what is being said here it's the amazing character and power of the almighty God to look at the Niagara Falls and call it awesome would be appropriate To look at a piece of Lego and call it awesome is really misses the point severely. And so what we have is, and what we need to grasp is the awe of Yahweh the Lord. Because the basis of our fear of Yahweh, verse 10, is the awesomeness of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, he says in verse 10, is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. I hope you know of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you know of his death for our sin and his resurrection to new life. I hope that he has poured his Holy Spirit into your life so that you've come to accept the great gift 
of forgiveness and the transformation that comes with new birth. I hope that under the work of the Spirit in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have silenced the evil one who accuses you of your sins. For you're able to say, certainly I have done all those things. But the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for them all. And before the Almighty God now I stand justified, just as if I've never sinned. And so you can call the Almighty God, your Father, Abba, Father, because of the Spirit of his Son within your life that has so changed things that you are not afraid of the judgment day because you know of the forgiveness, the pardon, the mercy, the gracious kindness of God. I hope you know those things. But friends... We will not appreciate those things till we come to terms with the awesome holiness of Yahweh. Till we stand or kneel or lie prostrate before his awful holiness. That we've been overwhelmed by the sense of his fearful righteousness and our total sinfulness you can enjoy the the surging strength of a wave that carries you into the beach but you must remember the power that lies behind the waves that carry you in the beach or you will one day be destroyed by them The person who is not fearful at all of the surf is the fool who stands a good chance of drowning in the surf. God is to be feared. He is fearful, awesome, awful. And such fear is the beginning of wisdom. Without it, we miss the point of life completely. Without it, we look at that picture and say, with a degree of truth and stupidity, it's a really beautiful picture. Of course the world is beautiful as you look at it. You can, you can study the minute details of its finery. You can, you can even wonder at its intricacy. But with your mind firmly shut to the Creator and His purposes you will not see what is there before you. But those who live in the fear of the Lord, they will have a good understanding. So one more time we look at Vermeer's lady weighing the pearls. And did you notice that she's pregnant? Vermeer, like all 17th century Dutchmen, would know what the Bible likens the day of the Lord to. The day of the Lord when he comes in judgment will be like a thief coming unexpectedly in the night or as a pregnant woman coming into her labour. For the coming into labour is a certainty and is an irresistibility. It will come when it wishes to, without warning, 
you have to be prepared at any time for it to come. But come it will, and it cannot be stopped. Here she stands in her idle wealth, weighing up her pearls, whose value is really of no great significance. And she stands under the judgment of God, whose certainty and suddenness requires her to be prepared, as is symbolized in her extended womb. The longer you look and study the painting, the more you see the painter's message and understanding. But if you don't study a painting like Vermeer's paintings, or if you don't include a knowledge of God's word, you'll see the picture, marvel at its beauty, and miss the point completely. You can analyse the picture. You can look at the brush strokes. You can describe which kind of paint he used. You can talk about the use of light. You can, you can analyse the picture in a thousand ways and totally miss the point of what the artist is saying. As you idle away hours in the art gallery, weighing up the pearls yourself and failing to hear the message of the inevitability of the judgment of God and the frivolous wasting of time that we have in the judgments of life that we engage ourselves in. Friends, the psalmist commences verse 1 with the praise of Yahweh and he concludes the psalm with the declaration that his praise endures forever. Well, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but it's about two or 3,000 years old. And his last affirmation still rings true. Yahweh is still being praised. And Yahweh's will be praised forever. For Yahweh is the creator of the universe, the judge of all the world, who rules the world in righteousness and justice And through redeeming his people Israel is saving people today to the very ends of the world. So we have much to praise Yahweh for as we study our world and its history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that as you redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt... So even more you have redeemed us out of our slavery to sin and the condemnation that we lived under, not by Pharaoh but by Satan. We thank you, Father, for his death, for his resurrection and pray for your spirit to be so full of our lives that we will recognize your awesome power and righteousness and rejoice to be able to call you our loving Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.